This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Benner, and today I'm sharing episode 53 with Blue Robinson. Blue is the founder of Addict to Athlete as well as a mental health counselor. Blue struggled with addiction early on in his own life, but when he found a passion for mountain biking, he found the power in replacing his addiction with a new love and passion for endurance sports and the mountains. And what I love about Blue's story is he didn't just keep those secrets of how he found sobriety to himself. Instead, he went on to create a free community group called Addict to Athlete. Addict to Athlete is an incredible nonprofit organization that helps individuals struggling with addiction to replace that with things of greater value while maintaining sobriety. They host group runs, practices, and races to help individuals pour their energy into something other than their addiction. As a therapist himself, Blue has also helped Addict to Athlete offer free community support groups, online support and resources, as well as they do a ton of community service projects. And you'll hear all about that in this episode. And September is National Recovery Month. And to celebrate, Addict to Athlete is putting on this really awesome virtual 5K that anyone can enter anywhere. And the Illuminate podcast is actually giving away two race entries to the race. You can enter simply by leaving a rating and review or subscribing to the podcast and emailing a screenshot of it to emma at sandyboyproductions.com. You can even do both if you want double the entries. There will also be more opportunities to win over on Instagram at sandyboyproductions. So make sure you follow along there so you don't miss out. Well, Thank you all for being here today, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Blue Robinson. All right, today on the podcast, we have the founder of Addict to Athlete and the current head coach of the program, Blue Robinson. Hey, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's great to be here and talk a little bit about this program that kind of seemed to start out of nowhere and take off. It's been kind of amazing. Yeah, when I learned about Addict to Athlete, I just immediately knew that it's perfect for the show because the organization really and what you do there is perfectly encapsulating the idea of illuminating others. Yeah, absolutely. No, and that's kind of the premise of what Addict to Athlete is. It really is to illuminate the the dark soul that once was consumed by addiction and then put it back into the spotlight where it should be to be able to what we call erase the addiction and replace it with things of greater value. And and uh, in 19, see, 2011, when we started, I had no idea that it would take off like it has. And people kind of step into that light and they like what they see and then they kind of carry on sobriety from there. So it's been kind of an interesting ride. Yeah. So let's take it back a ways to where you were just talking about. Um, you founded Addict to Athlete partly because you yourself struggled with addiction and found that running helped you overcome that. Mm -hmm. 
as much as you're willing to share, would you want to talk about some of that journey? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So, and then that's the funny thing about Team Addict to Athlete is that we are not anonymous. So anyone that wants to know about it can can ask one of the athletes because we we've kind of decided that in 2020, uh, anonym, anonymity will kill you. So um, I'm completely okay with talking about this kind of stuff. But yeah, so growing up in 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 my life, we had quite a turbulent upbringing. Uh, I had a mother who who had a hard time understanding what being a parent really was, and so she uh, she put us in a lot. Of situations and places that just were really unbecoming of a, of a family. Um, married when she was 14 years old. And so she was a child herself when she started having her family. And, and I'm the fourth of, uh, of four kids. And when it came to be my turn, kind of start figuring out uh, what life was like because of all the poverty and the struggles that we went through as kids. Um, yeah, I, tur- I turned to drugs and alcohol as kind of an escape and really kind of typecast myself into that paradigm of, of you know, kind of born loser. And it didn't take too long before that addiction started doing really bad things in my life, started losing relationships, started, you know, kind of teetering on on uh, on like legal issues, never did have to be arrested and go down that path, but it was coming. And then in 1996, kind of had an awakening that that wasn't the life that I needed and walked away from friends and family. You know, I like to joke that in 1996, when I when I committed what I call social suicide, I actually uh, got a new group of friends and they were like Chandler and Monica and Ross and all those guys on Friends because that was all I could hang out with because all my social life was completely uh, centered around using and, and, uh, and the drug abuse. And so what happened was as I was, you know, kind of what, 23 years old and trying to figure out who I was. I, I got this job and uh, it's kind of funny when you're not using and you have a job, you start earning this thing called a paycheck and I started having all this money. And I'm like, this is kind of scary for me to have money because I you know, don't have any friends. I still have this, this urge to use. So I've got to go get rid of this money or else I'm going to spend it on something dumb. And I went down and I bought like a really expensive mountain bike. I remember like the whole whole paycheck I had and a few before that were all kind of gathered together and I went and just, just spend the money to get rid of it. And it was awesome because I bought this mountain bike and it was kind of wall art for the first couple of weeks. And one day in the middle of summer, I'm like, I'm going to take this out. And I live in Utah. Uh, specifically then it was a place called Springville, Utah, which is about 30 miles south of Salt Lake. And we got these awesome mountains. So I thought, I'm just going to ride my mountain bike in the mountains. So here's me having no clue what I'm doing. No helmet, no water bottles, you know, in Levi's shorts and some stupid t-shirt. I'm up there biking around the mountains and I got really lost. And, and these two mountain biker guys come pulling up behind me and they're like, dude, are you lost? And I'm kind of like, yeah, man, I am in, in a few different kind of ways, you know? And it was funny because I'm sure they're looking at me like, who is this guy? And so they said, hey, we'll follow us. We'll take you down. We'll show you how to get back to the road. And I did. And when I got back down, they invited me to come back out. But the only qualification would be that I'd go buy a helmet. And I'm like, okay. But it was kind of an eye opener for me because it was one of these situations that I kind of term erase and replace. I was able to erase that that addict mentality inside of me and replace it with a mountain biker. And I started thinking how important that is. And, and I didn't really come to fruition until a few years later when I started Addict to Athlete. But I got married to, to my wife. She was an avid swimmer and her whole family was, was avid runners and to uh to win my wife's hand in marriage, I had to talk to my father-in-law who said, yeah, you, we'll let you in the family if you come run a marathon with me. I had no idea what that was. So I'm like, yeah, I'll run a marathon with you. And then when I told my wife that uh, I'd gotten the blessing from her, her mom and dad to marry her, but uh, the only qualification was to run this marathon. She's like, you're a fool. Do you know how far that is? I'm like, no. 
So she, she said it's, it's 26.2 miles. And so if you do this, you've got to understand that that's not an easy thing to do. And, and I kind of uh, begrudgingly decided to just go ahead with it, which was awesome. Because as I was training for this marathon that I committed to, not knowing what it was, I was able to build a relationship with my father-in-law that I never had. You know, finally a, a male role model who, uh, you know, who I could look up to. And really, I kind of uh, got to know him and he got to know me in a way that I've never really experienced before. And so it was really super humbling for me to, to be able to do that. But it just reinforced the fact that, uh, you know, I can do hard things. Well, you know, we get married and I go to school and, and do all these crazy things and become a therapist. And I get a job at, at a place called uh, the Utah County Division of Substance Abuse, where I'm a therapist. And I was kind of a new therapist then. And uh, one day I came back from lunch and I noticed all my clients were kind of huddled around the back seat or the back of this pickup truck. And I kind of snuck up on them and you know, gave them the, what are you guys doing? Because that's never a good sign when you see all your clients huddled together, right? And uh, they were forging their sign-off sheets for their 12-step meeting. And I'm kind of like, you guys, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, this is supposed to be designed to help you. And, and it's part of the program. You have to attend three of these outside meetings. And they're like, well, it's not working for us, though. Like, we, we don't really agree with the 12 steps. We have a hard time, you know, with the atmosphere. It's just kind of like, it's not healthy. And, and to their credit, it really wasn't. I mean, there's more of a, a social light show and instead of like active recovery here. And so it got me thinking, well, what worked for me was health and wellness. And so I kind of had the idea then to, if they don't have it, I should create it. And so I decided to go to my bosses and ask if they'd give me their blessing to, to train five participants in my therapy group to, to run a 5k. And they called it, it was, the, it was called the Chase the Mayor 5k in Provo, Utah. And it was pretty funny because as we were training for this and we're out running, these guys are telling me all kinds of stuff about themselves. Like they're telling me about trauma they experienced. They're telling me about things that, that were heavy on their hearts as we're running. They're just being so open. And, and I'm thinking, you guys aren't this way in my feng shui set up office. Why out here in the public are you just burying your soul? And uh, it was kind of cool because, you know, there's one girl who we were running and uh, I said, she's like, Blue, I got to stop. And I'm like, I'm like, well, come on, you can keep going. She's like, Coach, I got to stop. I'm like, okay, then run to the end of that street. And we were almost the end of the street. And as we got close to the end of the street, I said, okay, now run to that yellow pickup. And she's like, oh, so she runs to the yellow pickup. And then I'm like, okay, now to that playground. And she's like, oh, come on. And we got to the playground and we finally were able to walk. She burst into tears and I'm thinking, oh crap, I, I, I broke her. Like, I'm in trouble. I'm like, are you okay? She's like, I always do this. She's like, I always give up when I have more in the tank. And she's just bawling in the middle of the street. And she's like, I've given up on my family. I've given up on my kids. I've given up on my life. I've given up on everything when I knew I had more in me. And it was one of those metaphorics kind of like experiences where I'm like, maybe there's something to this. So they trained for this couch or this, they trained for the couch to 5K to, to run this uh, Chase the Mayor 5K gimmick race. And the gimmick was, they gave the mayor a two-minute head start, and then everyone chases him down. And I still don't know what they were supposed to do when they caught the mayor. Maybe pat him <laughs> on the behind as they run yeah. by. Good, good run, mayor. But they did. The mayor took off two minutes later. All my athletes took off. But right before they started, they handed out these T-shirts that said "Addict to Athlete" on them. And uh, I'm like, you guys sure you want to wear those? Because you're stepping out of anonymity. They're, people are going to know that you struggle with addiction. And they were like, we don't care. We're happy with what we've done. So they put their shirts on. They took off. And I'm kind of glad they did because when all but, all but one of them caught the mayor and the mayor noticed their shirts right away. And he says, hey, what, what's addict to athlete? And so now here's this ex-heroin addict 
not only beating the mayor in a 5K, catching him, but also now bearing his, his testimony about recovery to the mayor of Provo. And uh, he did that with you know three other of the athletes that, that caught him. And by Monday of that next that next work week, I was called into my boss's office thinking I was going to get in trouble you know, because I'm like, oh, great. Our first experience. And now they've done something that I didn't know about. But the mayor had contacted our the county commissioners who were over our program and said, hey, I don't know what this is, but keep it going because I just had an amazing experience with, with these people that are in recovery and they say it's your program. And so they gave me the green light to start Addict to Athlete. And that was 10 years ago. And now we, we started with five. We're up to about 6,000 athletes throughout wow. the state and throughout the, the country. And we're, for some strange reason, we just keep growing and growing. What an incredible story to go from yourself, the bottom, you know, with struggling with addiction mm-hmm. with your family and then coming back and, and starting this to help other individuals in a position yeah. that you were. So were these clients of yours, how many did you have to ask to get involved in this? Like, were a lot of people hesitant or did you ask five of them yeah. and five of them joined? It was pretty funny. Yeah. Cause I had a group of about 25 and only five of them stood up and raised their hand and said, Hey, we want to try this. And it was interesting because they were the five that I didn't think would ever, you know, you know, do any kind of a physical activity. And so I thought, well, we'll see. And, you know, that was shoot, that was 10 years ago. And I know where each of those original athletes still are today. Every one of them are still in contact in one way, shape or form. And that's the weird thing about it is, you know, I started this in a treatment center, an outpatient treatment center, and post-treatment retention of people that uh, leave treatment, they've stuck around. Our post-treatment retention is about about 70, 70%, which is kind of amazing that we have people that have been in this program since it started. And it's not because it's a, it's a requirement. It's because they like the they like our motto, our erase and replace motto, and our turn your mess of addiction into the message of sobriety. And so these guys get out and they can run with purpose and they can they can do things now that they never dreamt they could do before. And one of the big criticisms were when we first started was, you know, A, we don't identify ourselves as addicts. We believe that addiction is a part of us. It's not who we are. So we will never stand up in a meeting and say, hello, my name's Blue. I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. Because that's only a small part of us. You know, Blue Robinson is also a father and a brother and a son and a scholar and a therapist and, and, and an artist. And, and yeah, I'm an addict, but it's a part of me. And so we got a lot of pushback from the community because of that. The, uh, the, the concept in 12 Steps is that you're powerless over your addiction. And I truly do not believe that. I think great power can be found in you standing up and taking control of your life. And so you know, those five that started kind of uh, ran the gauntlet with me because we were such a new program here that was so saturated with other people's traditions that uh, they almost wore it as a badge of honor at first. But we didn't create a, uh, like a cross addiction by training them how to be gym rats and, and ultra runners. We train them for balance, which means that if they run, you know, they also have to serve and they have to talk about it and they have to you know, to bring their families so the families can recreate together. And um, one of the big criticisms where we were just creating you know, another addiction, but it's funny because Addict Athlete does more service for our community than we do like recreation you know, within it. And so the people that don't understand what our principles are about creating balance through, through community service, through health and wellness, through reestablishing family relationships, through participating with the family, those are the ones that kind of want to write us off by saying that what we're doing is, is counterproductive. But really, um, we do a ton of community service and it's been neat to watch 
local law enforcement get behind us, the judicial system get behind us, probation, um, because they see that if they're part of Addict to Athlete, then they have like, you know, they've, they've got some credibility because of how strict we are with, with our principles to their recovery. So it's kind of an interesting paradigm that we started. What is some of the community service that you talk about? It's pretty cool. Like, I, and I, I thank you for asking. Some of the community service that we've done, it, it blows me away. Some of the more precious things that we've done was early on the team's history, um, I was approached by my brother-in-law. His name's Heath Thurston. He's a professional Ironman athlete and uh, he's a swim coach now. And, and he approached me because he had bumped into a family with a child that has special needs. This young man, he really wanted to be out and moving and mobile, but never, never could. His, his disabilities were such that he's, he's chair ridden. And so he approached me and said, hey, do you think Team Addict to Athlete could get behind a fundraising effort to buy a Dick and Ricky Hoyt triathlon running chair, you know, like a stroller for these, these guys? And I'm like, yeah, man, that sounds like a really cool idea. Little did I know that those things cost upwards of seven grand. And at that point, Addict to Athlete's operating budget with our nonprofit was maybe a couple hundred bucks. And I'm like, oh, Heath, I don't know, but let's try it. And sure enough, like our athletes found the passion for it. They, they did the fundraising. They did all kinds of stuff to raise money. And we were able to buy this racing wheelchair for this young man. And when we got the privilege of pushing him in our races, and then that kind of opened the door. We've done that twice now where we've, we've raised money for these wheelchairs so that kids with disabilities could come out and participate. And the neatest part about that was there was a family who were very were very close to. It, their name's Shad and uh, Freya Robison, and they have a, a young little, little little child who's severely disabled um, because of a mother who was who was an addict and she was born addicted. And because of that, she has extreme developmental delays and, and she's, she's legally blind and, and legally deaf. And she, the, the Robinsons came to one of our meetings one day to kind of like find out why people would, would, uh, you know, have children when they're addicted. And she was kind of coming to kind of chew us out. And um, when she found out what we were doing and who we were, she, uh, we were able to build that relationship and we raised money for Emma a wheelchair and our athletes get to push Emma. And I can think of no greater honor than uh, a family who has addiction rob this child of a life, then put her in the hands of us who are quote unquote, you know, addicts um, to help, you know, her race with us. And everyone that pushes Emma in her wheelchair that we raised for her, they feel like they have an angel pushing them because it's just a purpose and a, and a reason to run. And so those kind of things we've done are, are super precious to me because they've directly affected the team in a positive way. But we do a lot of things that uh, are, are interesting. We raise money each year for, for children who, who have addiction in their families who need, who need money for Christmas. And so last year for our Sub for Santa efforts, our athletes uh, raised money enough to supply about 70 kids with Christmas. And uh, when our local law enforcement, our local police department got on the news and said they raised money for, for 10 families and we, we did about you know 15 families and we, we kind of smiled to ourselves like, hey, we're doing something good. So basically we teach them to serve out of their inconvenience to give back to the communities they once took from. And so we do like aid stations for for racing and events. We do trail cleanups for the for the forest service, you know, for the trail runs that we do. And we do all kinds of stuff to show people at large that the stigma of an addict is no longer what they think. It's they, they really are powerful people that just need a little bit of a boost. 
I love that. And it definitely, the running is one point of accountability and motivation to, you know, stay sober and have a group of people around you. And then that additional part of helping the community, like you said. So I do want to go back just a little bit in your story. You talk about how 12 step just didn't work for you and didn't work for a lot of your clients. Mm -hmm. So what did work for you? You said kind of out of the blue, got sober, but what was it that flipped the switch and and helped you along the way because you didn't have addict to athlete back then. No, no, I didn't. And 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 again, thank you for asking. The the thing that pulled me out of my out, really out of my addiction because you know it's not using and being clean are two very different things, right? I mean, you can still have all the characteristics of someone who's using by the lying and the manipulating and the hiding from life. And I very much had that. And it wasn't until I got a job working with youth that uh, I was able to kind of step out of myself and serve a, a little bit more to kind of help kids that were a little bit less fortunate than me. But really, the key to all this was was relationships. When I was developing the relationship with, with myself and with my father-in-law and with my future wife, um, I was able to kind of like, uh, I guess, be be happy and proud of the, of the man I was becoming because growing up in such a, a child abusing lifestyle that my family put us through really spooked me to even have a family of my own. And, uh, you know, like I said, my mother was married at 14 and she's been married and divorced you know, six times. And, you know, all these men that she brought into her life were, were struggling with addictions of their own. And so it was really bad. We had a lot of bad examples of father figures. And so when I became a father, that spooked me right to the core because dads mean pain. And here I'm holding this, my, my first daughter named Brooklyn, I'm holding her in my arms on this pillow, thinking, how could a father hurt something so precious? My wife after day two is like, Blue, why are you carrying her around on a pillow? And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, Dads hurt kids. And she's like, well, they're kind of rubbery. They're, you'll be okay. And I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. And I had to really kind of put myself in check and build that relationship with, with uh, positive role models in my life. And so I give all of this credit to the people that I surrounded myself once I walked away from the sickness, which unfortunately, like I said, was family members and, and old friends. And those relationships that believed in me enough to say, hey, you dropped out of high school. How about you go back and get your adult high school diploma? And hey, you know, you, you come from a family that never graduated high school. You're the first one to do that. How about we really shock them by going to college? And I never thought I'd do any of this stuff. But it was these people that I met along the way that uh, believed enough in me to like, you know, say, hey, you're better than this. You know, don't take a knee in life. How about you get up and you run the play all the way through and see what happens? And so it's about relationships, 100%. It's what Team Addict Athlete represents in people's lives. It's about having an industry or a team to belong to that really becomes a family. And uh, when I felt those lifestyle changes occur, those relationships were genuine um, because they were returning on my investment by being there and being available. I was like, this is what I think recovery is really about. And so really, I emulate that as a coach to this team and as a therapist and with my clients. So then is that what drew you to become a therapist yourself and work with individuals struggling with addiction? Or was it something else that kind of drew you to that? No, it's actually kind of a funny story. So as I was kind of coming out of my, my darkness and kind of coming to the light, my wife, who you know, we were dating at the time, um, she's like, when she found out that I still had all these attributes of like a world-class addict, you know, like, like the lying and the manipulating and some of the things I didn't want her to find out because I thought if my awesome girlfriend, future wife, finds out about my past on who I was, she's never going to love me. 
And so I kept a lot of that stuff to myself. And when it was all exposed and when it all kind of came out to my shock, she was like, hey, I really love you, but like you need help, kid. <laughs> so uh, I met a I met a guy who who uh, referred me to a therapist, and it was interesting because my very first therapy session, I did not want to go, and I walked into this office, and I'd love to find this man who helped me because I'm sure he wouldn't believe what's happened. But I was sitting in his office, and he was telling I was telling him all my story about about the abuse that I suffered and about everything that I went through and the lies that I told and the addictions that I had. And at the very end of the session, he's like, "Well, Blue, it's kind of easy." He said, "You know, you just don't know who you are." And I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, tell me who you are." And I got so upset, and I'm like, "Man, that's a rhetorical question. No one can answer that." So I stood up and I walked down, like, "Good day, sir." Right? And I walked out and I went back to my my wife, my girlfriend's house at the time, and I'm like. She's like, how did it go? And I'm like, oh man, you know, I'm done. And she's like, you're done? I'm like, yeah, one session and I'm done. And she's like, no. And I'm like, yeah, well, he asked me this stupid rhetorical question that no one can answer. I said, he asked me who I was. And she's like, you can't answer that? And I'm like, no one can. And she's like, well, I can. And then she told me who she was, like who she was as a person, her morals, her values, her beliefs, the things that really made her uniquely her. And it scared me to death because at 23 years old, I had no idea who the person was looking me in the in the eyes in the mirror. And so I had to go back to Arlen, the therapist, and apologize and say, well, maybe there's something to this. And he helped me kind of recognize the uh, emotionally unsafe environment that I grew up in and kind of gave me some kudos for actually surviving all the stuff that we went through. And, and then uh, I proposed to my girlfriend and I brought her into therapy and Arlen, the therapist, thought we were crazy because he's like, Blue, you're still kind of messed up. You're getting married, you know? <laughs> but uh, we did. We we worked things out together. She got to know me more. I got to realize that I'm not the only one that has problems, that my wife, who seems to come from an amazing family, actually struggled with some of the same emotions I did. So I kind of feel that I wasn't alone. So our first six months of dating were, were kind of in therapy, which was kind of cool later on down the line because that first year of marriage was amazing. So I decided to go in to get my degree after I was working at a treatment center with youth. And uh, a mentor of mine pulled me aside and said, you work really good with these kids. You connect with them really well. How about you check this program out and become a drug and alcohol counselor? And so I did that. And then I went on to get my master's degree to be a therapist. So it is kind of funny that my first experience with therapy was like shooting the therapist a bird and walking out of his office and then apologizing because I needed the help. And now that's what I do for a living. So it's kind of an interesting paradigm. Right now, when you have uh, clients yourself that kind of have that hesitation or that anger towards you as a therapist, you probably relate and can understand a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. I know exactly where they're coming from. It's a scary thing. Change is a scary thing. And uh, they don't know what they're capable of. And this is one of the things I've seen on Team Addict Athlete. When I first started the program, I thought all we would do is use the metaphor of becoming a world-class athlete to become a world-class person in sobriety. And it's the same thing. It's about hard work. It's about diligence. It's about training and then all this stuff. And so I really did think that that would, be, that would be it. And we'd go and run these little 5Ks and 10Ks and that would be it. But my other brother-in-law, who is a ultra marathon runner, said, Lou, you've got to let them do more. If you, if you hold them back at a, uh, a six-mile run, they'll never know what they're really made of. And so that made a lot of sense to me. And so some of them wanted to go on to do marathons and some of them wanted to go on to do ultra marathons, which is in the range of 50 miles, 100 miles, 135 miles. And what I noticed is that these folks, these athletes, these people in addiction, they already know how painful it is. 
to be in their skin. They don't, nothing can compare to the pain that they've had when, say, the state has come in to take their kids away because they're unfit, they're unfit parents. And so they talk about how hard it is that very first night when, you know, their, their, their house is quiet because they've been using and the states come in, the, the police, and they've taken their kids because they can't, they, they're not fit to be, to be parents. That hurts. And so when they are climbing these mountains or they're doing these runs and they start to get into like some physical pain, they're like nothing compared to the emotional pain that I've already experienced. And so I've seen these athletes do amazing things because they know how to distribute the pain and they know how to channel it right and they can do it healthy and they can achieve these amazing things. And it's been pretty wild to watch when I've had to really kind of confront some of the the, the clients I've worked with because they dumb themselves down. And I'm like, you're stronger than this. You can do more. You know, you can you can you can lift these emotional bags that you have and unpack them. And and it's kind of a cool metaphor that we get to use with the with team addict to athlete because when they then they're physically doing it, they can emotionally do it. And so it's 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 been interesting when I've had to kind of lay the hammer down on some of these guys because they're giving up too soon. Are you still working as a therapist? <laughs> it's funny because uh, I still work as a, as a, as a therapist full-time. I work for a, an outpatient treatment program right now called Palmari, and it's an outpatient program in, uh, in Orem, Utah. And uh, Addict to Athlete, as big as it is, has always been kind of a side hobby. There's a lot that we've been able to do with it, with our own podcasts and with our own stuff. But like, really, my ultimate goal with the team is to give people a foundation of recovery without having to go bankrupt. I was an owner of my own treatment center, a residential treatment center that was very lucrative. But I noticed that in that industry, we were talking about having people coming in, spending you know, 60, 70, you know, $80,000 on recovery and not getting what they needed. And it kind of bothered me. Like, like ethically, like this isn't, this isn't right. And so addict to athlete, my, to, to be, to, you know, to be quite honest between me and you, my goal with addict to athlete is to help people find a way to recovery without having to spend thousands and thousands of dollars because it's, it's the experience. It's about, you know, it's about you participating in a race and replace mindset. You don't have to do the, the, the thousands of dollars in residential treatment when you get a team behind you, you can accomplish anything. And so I still work as a full-time therapist in an outpatient program because these guys come here, they get the help they need and they go back out in the real world. And then they come back and return and report the successes or the failures. And we, we strengthen them by pointing out the triggers or warning signs. And they don't, they don't become reliant on the safety net of a residential program. So it's, it's kind of an interesting industry, all this kind of stuff, but I was kind of fed up. It just seems unethical and icky to me. The, uh, the mindset of a residential treatment program. Well, I just love that. I love what you're doing with Addict to Athlete and allowing so many individuals to find hope and find a new passion. I mean, one of my questions was going to be if you ever worry about them replacing their one addiction for another and the new addiction being running. What are kind of the background ideas to how, do you, how you ensure that isn't instilled in the athlete? Yeah, thank you for asking because that's one of the biggest things that people wonder about because it's a very real thing and it can happen. And and it has happened to some degrees. And so the difference between what we do on Team Medic to Athlete when uh, we start seeing someone start drifting more towards the the bigger, the badder, the faster, the stronger, we reel them in and we start pointing out the character flaws and we start showing them like the time and the energy that they're putting into running and then what they're giving up because 
no one can be just a part-time recreational you know, drug addict. If you're going to be a drug addict, you're going to have to give up something. So if you're going to be like, like a world-class athlete, you're going to have to give up something. So if you have a family or you have responsibilities, guess what? You're going to have to be a weekend warrior. And so we don't put a ton of prestige on who comes in first or who gets how many medals or none of that stuff even matters. What we do is we want to say, this is the journey. This is between you and, and the trail. And so when we see people that are starting to gravitate towards trying to be bigger, better, faster, stronger, the way our team's designed, we have, we have the head coaches and then we have, we have what we call um, team captains. And then we have what we call personal trainers. And so the team captains are kind of like the peer mentor of the group. These are the people who are on each other's wavelength. So each chapter has as many team captains as they need to make sure that they have their pulse on everyone who's on the team. And then if someone starts to struggle or someone has a relapse or if someone goes a little bit too far, too heavy, too fast or whatever, we have our personal trainers who are more about going in to find out how they're becoming unbalanced. And we train these guys to be peer mentors and to go in and say, look, you're spending way too much time and energy on these races and stuff. And you know, we need to slow things down. We need we need you to do more service. We'd love to have you come participate handing out water or running the raffle or or we have a we have a speaking engagement coming up at the junior high I need your help with. And so we provide a lot more outlet and we don't I mean it's funny, we don't focus on um, the, on how cool it is to be an amazing athlete. Like, you know, we have the softball team, and it's funny because this is kind of through and through. We suck. We get beaten, <laughs> creamed every time we play. And so there's not a lot of like boasting. And don't get me wrong, if, you know, there was one time where I had an athlete early on, and his name was Brandon, and he was, I was, was like, I like our third or fourth race as a team. And I look up at the end of this race and I see him come around the corner. And I'm like, holy crap, one of my athletes, they're going to win this race. And I'm cheering real loud and I'm looking at him and I see him coming around the corner and he stops and he's looking like he's tying his shoe and I'm screaming, Brandon, run, Brandon, run. And he's sitting there and he's sitting there and all of a sudden, the, you know, another person pops around the corner and passes him and then another. So I'm kind of looking at him thinking, is he okay? And after the third person passed him, he got up and kind of jogged in and then when he crossed, I'm like, Brandon, what the heck was that? And he's like, you saw that? I'm like, yeah, we all saw that, man. Did, what, what happened? Are you injured? And he's kind of broke down. And he's like, no, I didn't. But I thought if I finish this race first, people are going to think I cheated. Oh. And I'm like, Brandon. And so he gave up his victory because he didn't want people to question his integrity. And I'm like, well, did you cheat? And he's like, no, I don't think so. I'm like, don't you ever do that again. And so really what we try to do is emphasize the experience and they know that when they sign on with the team that if we see this kind of behavior we i hope because i'm a therapist with them i'll process it i'll i'll sit them down in a family therapy session and say you're spending too much money on these race entries or you're spending too much time doing this you know kids what do you need from your dad and so we we approach things a lot differently you know we really want to create that balance through remembering that that too much of anything can make you an addict so we've got to be careful with it and to be honest with you, there's only been one guy that took it to the extreme. And after he crashed and burned, he came back too and, and kind of was able to express to other people that were kind of coming down that pipeline the same thing. And so it's not about, uh, you, know, you know, like switching addictions. It's about, you know, showing them like the whole caliber of the person, not just an attribute that they're good at. It seems like there's so many different personalities and people in different stages of recovery and all that sorts within the team. It just seems like this really great mesh where you talked about when you 
were becoming sober and um, starting your recovery, you kind of had to switch friend groups and you couldn't really figure that out. And it seems like with your team, there's just this built-in group of people that they, they can go to and they instantly have an opportunity to be surrounded by people that are kind of like-minded and on the same journey as them and just a really good support. So that seems really cool to have that whole mix of people. And like you said, the captains that are kind of leading and saying, Hey, I've been there and this is what I did and pulling people to help, help them have an easier road too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, what's neat about all of this as we were having these meetings and we do things very differently on Team Addict to Athlete and our community support meetings, we'll have like, you know, a 15, 20, sometimes 30 minute discussion where it's open topic instead of like a 12 step meeting where you can't cross talk. It's just someone sharing. We have topics. And so if someone comes in and they're like, hey, I got real close to having a relapse today and this is what I did. Other people can join in and say, that sounds really good. Next time, try this or whatnot. And what I notice is that as I was having these discussions, because they were A, super emotionally safe, B, we were going to go out and exercise and run after the meeting. So there wasn't a lot of cigarette smoking and coffee drinking because no one wants to drink a hot cup of coffee before you go run. And so there was like all these things that were different because we weren't talking about like war stories. These athletes who are in my program who have addiction started bringing their kids with them. And that blew me away because in traditional 12-step meetings, it's not a real safe environment for kids to be in because there's a lot of foul language. There's some kind of crazy things that sometimes go on. I'm not knocking the 12 steps, but I'm saying sometimes it's not conducive to that. And so I found the need real quick that as I'm having these folks come into this meeting, you know, they already have drug and alcohol treatment and therapy for a few hours a day. Then they got to go to work. And then they got to check in with the probation officer and they have all these things they got to do. They never had time for their families. And so I started noticing that the emotionally safe environment that we were creating, the positive uh you know, I guess messages that we were carrying were inspirational for families. And so they started bringing their kids. And so we started what's called the Addict to Athlete Minor League. This is the 18 year and younger group. And typically it's the kids of the addict or the person who's in the program. And it blew me away because we've had kids, I kid you not, we had a kid with his dad that came out here and uh, he ran a 50 mile ultra marathon with his dad and they walked it and they hiked it and they spent about 17 hours together, these two, you know, this, this you know, little 14 year old kid and his dad. And um, that's time that they would have never had if his dad would have been stuck in his addiction. My own children participate in this program. They help the minor league kids by by supporting them, teaching them to swim and my daughter, she's 14. She started a podcast with the, the minor league with Savannah. And it's it's one of these things where I noticed real quick that we were we were doing things a lot different. We have just about as many people that don't have addictions attend because they have a loved one or a relative or a family member that does. Then we do people that have addictions. We call them the, the muggles, right? The, the non-magic folk. And so we really are very unbiased. You come to a meeting, a team at a tap, but you'll never know who struggles with addiction and who doesn't because we have such a blended mix of people. How often are athletes showing up and, you know, maybe they only last a couple of weeks and realize it's not for them and maybe they relapse? Mm, no, that's really good too. Um, so there's a few different things. There's a few different ways all that goes down. Um, starting with the, how long they last. So we have some that come with treatment centers, right? And, uh, they'll come and they'll participate for a little while and then they'll, they'll stop coming. Um, but the cool part about it is it doesn't matter if you tend to one meeting or if you're a regular person. If you see one of our athletes wearing an addict to athlete shirt in the community, you're, you're always part of the team. And so they'll actually say to other athletes, hey, addict to athlete, I, I went to one of your meetings. And so it'll, for some of them, it's not for them. We have a sister program called Addict to Artist, which does the same principles, only with people that would rather be 
you know, demonstrating recovery through artistic ability, whether it's poetry or, or painting or music or, you know, or art, sculpture and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I found out real quick, there's a lot of people that have more artistic ability than athletic ability. And so we have the, that avenue for them too. We have some people that don't like to run or don't like to recreate at all, but they love the, the atmosphere of the team. So they come and they serve. They come and like, they'll take pictures for the team. They'll post their stuff on Facebook. They'll come participate in the fundraising you know, experiences and things like that. And so there's so much that the team does and so many different avenues that there's a lot they can benefit from. And sometimes they're just old school thinking and they're like, no, the only way to get clean is the 12 steps. And so they come because they have to, but they don't come back and that's okay. And so really I've seen that kind of be the bigger, the bigger part of all this. If someone relapses though, and it happens because, you know, we, we've lost some of our, our athletes to, to, to addiction. And then there's a few that are uh, just still way very heavy on my heart, but if someone relapses on team addict to athlete, that's when we assign those personal trainers to them. We don't want them to to look at their at their relapse as as like the end all be all. So just like we don't identify ourselves as addicts, we don't let them count days either. I don't I don't really care about that because it's people that do that. They're kind of always white knuckling it. And so if you have a problem, if you have a slip, you know, if you use we we call the slip an acronym for sobriety lost its purpose. And so we do things a lot different. We don't put a lot of stock on the relapse. It's not the relapse. It's what they do with it. If they come in and they've had a problem and they're like, guys, I had a loss, you know, and we tell you this too. We distinguish the two. We talk about this a lot on Team Magic Athlete. On Team Magic Athlete, we don't, we don't, we don't let them lose, you know, and we get very upset when our athletes lose the battle. And there's a difference because if you lose the battle to addiction and you relapse, you start using it again, then you you left something in the tank. You didn't give it your all. You didn't reach out for your for your teammates' help. You you threw in the towel and you you lost the battle. But we understand if you get beat, and there's a very different, you know, I, I guess mentality. If you get beat, that means that you gave it your all. You were out there on that gridiron of life doing the best you could. And unfortunately, that that opponent, that adversary, that addiction was just stronger than you. And so we really, we really kind of teach them those principles that like there's a difference between you throwing in the towel versus you getting beat. And what we do is we rally around them. You know, we don't believe that anyone's too far gone. The the best part about it is we've had people that have signed up for for races and five Ks and stuff, and they didn't make it. And so after the race, the team goes to their place and like, dude, where were you? What happened? If you commit to, to sign up for a 5K on a Saturday morning, everyone knows where you are Friday night. You know, you're getting ready, you're resting, and you're doing what you need to do to prepare for this race. And the teams that they establish become so, so, I guess, supportive that if someone has a, a weakness or they fall down, you know, we, we might put them on the bench. And when you're on the bench, that means that we need you to, to do more service. We want you to be more more in tune with your needs. We want you to be more family oriented. We want you to be, you know, more of a, you know, more of a spectator and a contributor that way than a player and, and, a, and an athlete, you know, or if they do something really horrible, if they've done something that would really kind of necessitate like a DUI or something, we'll bench them. And when you're on the bench on team addict to athlete, it's just you meeting with the coach and you meeting with the trainers and that's it. You don't get to come out and hang out with the rest of the team until you're ready to make your comeback. And we love comebacks when I mean, no one loves comebacks more than more than someone in an athletic event, right? Rudy, all these things, when you have a comeback, um, we, we make it worth it. And so all these metaphors, all this time, all this investment, it's, it's peer to peer support. And that's kind of how we live it.
Yeah. What a support group to have people knowing exactly where you are, exactly what your goals are, and a group of people that will show up to say, hey, what's going on and keep you accountable. Yeah, they do it too. And yeah, so instead of like a a normal sponsor where they'd call you on the phone, like, are you okay? These guys are like, hey, grab your shoes. We're going for a hike. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to go throw, we're going to go, we're going to the batting cages to to hit some softballs or, you know, hey, we're going to go bowling or we're doing something. We're going to get you out of that mindset and it's kind of funny there's been times where i've had some athletes call me and say coach i'm, I'm on the fence man I, th- I think i'm going to use tonight and i'm like go ahead you have my blessing go use but first you have to go run you know you gotta go run your 5k you gotta go put in your miles and i want to see i want to see you know you, i want to see your splits and there's been a couple times they've done that to me and they get back they're like i don't feel like using anymore because you know on a, on a metabolical you know, on a physical state it's like when your body starts producing you know, all the dopamine and serotonin starts pumping all this stuff, um, you can literally forget you want to use. And so if they'll commit to do something physical before they do that, they don't want to when they're done. It's happened a couple of times throughout my career where I've, I've said, you have my blessing if you seriously think you need to, but first go to do this. And so we do, we do a lot of hands-on relationship building. To, and that's, I think, what really makes this team work. You're giving so many people hope in their journey to sobriety. So how do you see this, like in your own personal life, you talked about when your first kid was born. How old are your kids, by the way? Man, we have a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 12 and a 10, so right down the line. So you talked about when um, your first kid was born, how you kind of were hesitant and nervous. Today, you know, you've mm-hmm. gone through all the therapy yourself. You are a therapist. You've built this incredible program with Addict to Athlete, and you're helping so many people. But how do you see addiction, or that see your past of addiction showing up in your life now? You know, I, I love that you said that because, again, yeah, I've been clean now for 20 plus years, I mean, 1996, whatever, you know, but I've been clean a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And like I told you before, I don't identify myself as an addict. But I'm also not silly enough to tell you that it's completely gone. And the, and the reason why is because I believe we all have in our in our hearts and in our mind, we have this thing that I call like the trauma threshold. And this is that biggest fear. This is that biggest trauma. This is that biggest worry that we have that if this ever happened to me, I would really question my sobriety. And, you know, for a long time, mine was my trauma threshold was I could be clean through anything but if something happened to my kids, if I lost one of my kids, if they were in an accident or if they were injured or hurt to the point where I lost them and they passed away, I don't think I could stay clean. And I really thought about that for a long, long time. And that was kind of my trauma threshold. Well, the sad thing about those kind of things are is that there's always someone out there that, that's had a trauma threshold like mine. And I have, we had an athlete on this team and her name was Carly. And Carly was... Uh, she was, man, she, she just, she loved Team Addict Athlete. She had every color jersey we have. She came to every meeting. She brought her family with her. It was interesting. She was the first athlete that started bringing, like, her mom and her dad and her siblings and her, her, her aunt and her uncle started coming. And Carly was kind of the poster child for Addict to Athlete. And uh, she was a client of mine in therapy at the county. And then she was, you know, a very powerful athlete on the team. She got married, had a child, and fell into some uh, some depression postpartum. Had a relapse, and uh, you know came back into treatment. And uh, that treatment center I told you that, that I was a part of. She came to that and got got clean there. And 
right after she got done with treatment for the second time, um, and she was coming back on Team Addict Athlete, and everyone loved Carly. I mean, she was, you know, again, the poster child. Um, on October 2nd of uh, 2018, 2017, Carly passed away of a heroin overdose. Mm. And I had to be the one that called Carly's mom and dad, who are very much a part of Team Addict Athlete, who have raised money for us, who gave me the responsibility as Carly's therapist and coach to protect her. And on my watch, I lost her. And that was a really hard hit for Team Addict to Athlete because that shook the team to its core. Because if Carly, who was so involved and so engaged in this team and, and, and Carly's family, you know, were so in- engaged, can any of us make it out of here? And I almost threw in the towel on Team Addict to Athlete then because I thought, if I can't help her out of anyone, maybe I'm in the wrong business. And it was it was Carly's mom and dad that said, "Blue, this this isn't on you. This is, you know, if anything else, she wants this to go on from the other side." She and they they gave me like a lot of like feedback of like, "Look, no one blames you. You you're you didn't take a lease out on you know on everyone's life. Like you you know, no one put you in control of all this. You know, you're not a god. You're not a god creature here." And uh, they really put it into perspective, and so. As they experienced my trauma threshold on what might ding my sobriety, watching what they went through with the passing of, of, of Carly, um, uh, I know that if, you know, heaven forbid, if anything happened like that to my family, that I can't use that as an excuse anymore because if the rich family made it through Carly's death, what gives me the right to throw in the towel on my own sobriety because I have people that can help. And so, you know, you know, we we take this stuff really to heart, and it's not just a a tagline or a slogan. It really is true that that we're a family, a team, athletes, athletes more than a team, and you know, we have to turn these messages into powerful messages. And so, none of us can, can say for for any you know, like I guess uh, amount of time that we we have it all together, but we can't use it as excuses either. And so, you know, we've done some neat things with team addict athlete through real heavy like loss. I mean, you know, since its inception in 2011, we've lost about 12, 12 athletes throughout our whole program to overdose deaths. And each one of them are hard. But what we do is we don't forget them either. Like right now in September coming up is National Recovery Month. Addict to Athlete, we put on a, a 5K every year, but because of the COVID pandemic, we've turned it into a virtual run. And this year we're calling it the proxy run. And what it is, is we who are still alive will run proxy for those that we've lost because there's a lot of people that lost the battle. And so to tell the people in the community who these people were and who they meant to us, because they're not, they're not addicts in our life. These are our loved ones. Um, we, we run proxy for them. So one of the bib numbers that they, they'll wear, they'll, they'll write the name of the person that they're running for and they'll run as proxy for that person. And so we look at what that person's name meant to us, not for how they passed away, but for who they were. And we only have lots of athletes that run for Carly and, and all that. So really, you know, heaven forbid anything like that happening to me, I would never have the excuse to, to, to throw in the towel and to give up my my recovery, my sobriety for for a few moments of, of numbness, if that makes sense. Mm, that's so hard. I'm so sorry for the loss of Carly and the other athletes that you speak about. Yeah, she's she's definitely missed. That was a rough one because Carly Carly participated in the minor league and everything. So the kids 
the, the kids of, of some of the folks that are participating, they started questioning, hey, is, is my mom and dad going to be okay? Is this addiction going to take mm-hmm. their lives? And, right. And you know, what we did too, though, is Carly left behind two young little boys, both under the age of, of, of seven. And, you know, so we get to now kind of provide stuff for them. We get to, you know, put together, a, a, you know, a, you know, stuff for them so that they can remember who Carly was. And we get to, you know, like uh, help to a certain degree, kind of, you know, have them on our team and help raise them. And uh, it's a sad thing that we're seeing right now with this opiate epidemic. The government, unfortunately, has labeled these kind of kids opiate orphans. Mm. And it's a sad name. And I don't like it, but it makes a lot of sense as to why. But we're going to have a big problem coming up. And as a therapist, I can see the writing on the wall just because I've seen it on the team. And that's when these young ones lose primary caregivers to opiates and addiction, family members step in the best they can, but it's not going to be the same as it would a biological parent. And so if we don't put this on our radar now, we're going to have a big problem in a few years when these kids start getting older and start getting into the same thing. And so the teams kind of rallied around the rich family and the, and the boys and you know, and we do all kinds of stuff for them so that it's a kind of like a team in a village raising these guys. And so they're lucky, but we have a huge problem coming down the pipeline with these these young kids who are going to not kind of know how to love or be loved because they're being raised by non-parental figures. So, yeah, there's a lot out there still that we got a lot of work to still do, unfortunately, but it puts it all into perspective for us. Yeah, the minor league athletes, that sounds, did I say that right? Minor league athletes? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. That seems... Yeah so cool to have them have the support and have other you know you maybe they feel alone when they're in school and kind of like my my mom my dad has struggled with addiction and nobody else is going through this my age and now they're surrounded by these people their age that Mm -hmm. have similar experiences yeah it's a it's a big deal well and that's one thing we wanted to do with our nonprofit status when we do fundraising and stuff we allocate some of our funding specifically for the minor league and so for instance, you know, we had a we had a, an athlete of mine who, who was really involved in the team when we first started. He came to me one day and he said, Coach, I've got my son who wants to play football. It's his first time playing football. He's like, but with my court fines and with this job that I have and with all the stuff I have, I don't have money to pay for him playing football. And I'm like, well, how much is it? And I had no idea. But high school football was upwards of like 400 bucks and they just didn't have it. And I said, well, it's a good thing you belong to, to this team. And this is the first time we did it. But I'm like, hey, what if what if Team Addict Athlete sponsors your son to play? And what if we pay that $400 so that he can play? Because if he doesn't get the opportunity to play on the field, he's going to be one of those kids under the bleachers. And he's this athlete was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, no. I said, but here's the, here's the deal. And he's like, oh, I'll pay you back. I'm like, no, that's not what it's about. I said, here's the deal. The deal is, is you're the first one to show up at every practice and every game and you cheer the loudest and you stay afterwards to help get the kids where they need to be. And, you know, you bring the orange slices or whatever, but you, you go to every game, you be that, that, that support to your son. I, it's, it's kind of funny because we lost, we lost him to his family because he started being a dad and going to these games. And, and so he didn't get to participate on team at athlete anymore, but you know, to this day, I mean, that was years ago. His son went on to play every year in 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 high school. Went to play some college ball, and it was all because his dad had enough humility to say, "I'm worried about this." And so we were able to use some of our funding to help that that kid. And he'll that kid will never know. Which I told you, don't ever don't you, know, you don't need to tell your kid where this came from. But I need you to be 
his biggest supporter now and and that's what it that's what it became so that minor league it's a delicate thing and you know we're really privileged to be able to have it because of what these kids need watching families heal together through recreation is one of the neatest things i'll ever experience a good problem to have to lose that athlete to his family <laughs> uh-huh. instead of other things that's awesome exactly it was a good thing so I do want to hear about this race coming up and I mean, any other races I'm yeah. guessing you guys put on some fundraising races and I want to run in them. It's, yeah. you know, this virtual race seems really cool. So do you want to talk about that? Can anyone get involved around the country and is it a yeah. fundraiser for your anyone. organization? Mm-hmm. This is usually our, our main fundraiser here in the state of Utah. And uh, because of COVID and restrictions, we just couldn't get our race permits this year, which makes a lot of sense. But it gave us the opportunity to open this up uh, you know, as a virtual run. And I'll tell you, it's kind of a humbling thing. We started running this 5K just as a, as a way for the athletes to kind of you know, have something of their own. And when we first had it, we chose, each, each year we choose a different city in Utah, um, usually the ones that have the biggest drug problem throughout the year who have the most overdoses or something. So we go to the communities that need us. Our very first 5K we had was in a little town called Highland, Utah. And as we were getting all these race bags and these race numbers to these racers and stuff, I noticed there was this, this older guy kind of walking around and he's kind of checking us out. And as we were about ready to start the race and he comes over and he, the man's just in tears. And he says, he said, sorry, I get emotional. He said, I need to pick up my pocket. Am I too late? And I said, no, you're not too late. But I've seen him walking around for a good half hour. And he said, I came here today to run um, for my daughter who passed away of a heroin overdose a year ago. And he said, I came here, but I was kind of, I was kind of embarrassed that I'm a father of a, of a, of a kid who passed away. And he said, but I came here and I saw everybody laughing and joking. And I heard some of the stories about people, you know, in recovery. And I knew that I needed to be here. And he finally got the courage to come up and get his number right before we started this race. And that kind of broke my heart because I thought, I never want that to happen again. None of these people who lose family members to addiction should feel uh, you know, downtrodden or should feel alone because my gosh, this is, they need that they need that support even more. And so, with what we're doing this year, is kind of paying tribute to that kind of situation, which is the proxy run. And so, if you register for our race on our website, you know, addicttoathlete.org, we send you a bib number with the uh, with the team logo on there and a spot for you to write the name of the person that you're running for. And it doesn't have to be someone that's passed away to addiction; it could be anybody who even struggles right now. Everyone on the face of this earth has someone in their family that struggles with addiction. Everyone. And so it's, it's that prevalent. And so I challenge you know, people that don't believe me. I said, well, go ask. Go ask your, your, your clerk at the grocery store. Say, who in your family has an addiction? And they'll tell you. It's either you know, a brother or a sister or a parent or a cousin. Everyone has someone in their family that struggles. And so what we wanted to do is lighten the stigma about what addiction is and what it isn't. And so the proxy run helps uh, bring that attitude and that mindset of, you know, this is not what they wanted their life to be. They didn't want to to become you know, addicted to drugs or alcohol and they didn't want to lose their life. This is not what they had in mind. And by running proxy and running as as a as a proxy runner for your loved one, you get to carry that message with you and you get to share that experience with that uh, that loved one on the other side. And it keeps their memory alive. It keeps it keeps you in tune with with that spirit they they've got. And with it we we ship out three of our wristbands. Uh, our colors for Team Attitude Athlete are red, white, and black. And so the wristbands represent different things. The white wristband is for those who have conquered addiction, who have 
who are in that healing process and they wear white. And if it's uh, someone that's currently struggling that you're running for, that's, that's having a hard time in life because they still are addicted to the drug or alcohol, you wear the red. And then unfortunately, those who've lost their battle to addiction, um, they wear black. So it's just a thing. We've got people running all over the world this year. It's been kind of interesting. We have people in Japan and we've got some people from the UK. They're, they're doing it. And all the funds that we raise go into our nonprofit to help our chapter grow and, and do things like provide, you know, football training for kids that, that can't and all kinds of stuff that way. So, yeah. I will be running it. That's exciting. When is the deadline to enter? And then what is the day of the race? So it's uh, it, because because September's Recovery Month, nationally recognized for mental health and addiction awareness. You can run it any day throughout the month of September. Oh, cool! The last day to register will be probably the last week of September. So you got some time. But oh, there you go. What we want to do is have people that register um, get onto the social media and, and take your picture and proxy run twenty twenty. And we want to know who you're running for. One of the one of the highlights of my life is when I get to sit and talk to uh, family members who or turning the mess of addiction into the message of sobriety. And I get to learn about the loved one they have and, and how hard it is. But I want to hear these stories because, again, my trauma threshold, they've experienced. And I want to make sure that, uh, that we give them the time to teach me who they're running for. It's a beautiful thing. But, yeah, it's a, it's a nationally recognized month. So addicttoathlete.org, you can jump on there and register, and we'll send out all your packets. That's amazing. I hope we'll – get a good group of people running, representing the Illuminate podcast and Sandy Boy Productions. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, there's so many more things that I want to hear about, but I know we're <laughs> nearing the end of our time. So I will wrap up the podcast. Um, what is one book that you've recently read that you love? Oh man, 100%. I mean, that, that's a hard one, but um, we had a coach that uh, was part of Team Addict to Athlete and um, his name was David Clark. David Clark was a he's he was a he's an amazing man. He's an ultra runner, three hundred pound guy who lost a ton of weight by being vegan, and uh, had an addiction. He overcome alcoholism. He has a book called Broken Open, and um, it was kind of a wild fluke. But David finished his last book, uh, and uh, he was he was writing. He had three books, but Broken Open is my favorite of his. And after the last day of recording the audio for it, he went into the hospital complaining of some back pain and ended up losing his life to a surgery that kind of went down. And so we've kind of had heavy hearts this year because we lost one of our, mm-hmm. one of our coaches. But um, David Clark's book, Broken Open, is about radical change and about discovering who you are with some Buddhist philosophy and some, some mindset tools that really, really inspires um, you know, who, who we are and what we can do. So Broken Open by David Clark, I would say, is one of my favorite books. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about another loss, but definitely yeah. checking that out. That's great that he got got to wrap that up and finish that. So uh-huh. his, his words are out there. They are. And his podcast is amazing. So if you ever want to catch it, it's the We Are Superman podcast. And and Team Addict Athlete, we've had him on there, our podcast too. But yeah, no, it's it's a good book. I, I recommend anyone to read it who wants to start their journey of recovery. Awesome. Thank you. And then I'm sure you have a lot of these people because you work with such inspiring people every day in your organization. But who is one mm-hmm. person or what is something that is illuminating or inspiring in your own life right now? Um, 100%. My, one of my all-time mentors named Dr. Paul Jenkins, and he, he does a positive uh, psychology practice, um, calls it Live on Purpose. 
Dr. Paul Jenkins, um, an amazing man who just seems to see the good in absolutely anything. And uh, he's been super inspirational to me as a mentor and, and really just as a really good friend. And he's got such a great mindset on how to see like the best that uh, it's almost hard to have a bad attitude around him. So Dr. Paul Jenkins and Live on Purpose, I think, is is where I get my well, my mentorism from. <laughs> Awesome. And then what is your one message to send to the world? 100% that you're never too far gone, that uh, all you need to do is just is to have the courage is to hit that starting line and not worry about the journey there because the finish line will, will be there when you hit it, but to have enough courage to turn the mess of addiction into the message of sobriety. Thank you all for being here today. I loved my conversation with Blue and I just really enjoyed hearing his story of how he overcame so much and then went on to help so many people in his work and as well in his nonprofit, Addict to Athlete. And that virtual 5K that he talked about at the end there, that's a fundraiser for his organization, Addict to Athlete. And you can enter to win this race through the Illuminate podcast by leaving a rating and review or subscribing to the podcast and emailing a screenshot of this to emma at sandyboyproductions.com. There will also be more opportunities to win over on Instagram at sandyboyproductions on there, so make sure to follow along there so you don't miss out. If you want to continue to follow along with what Addict to Athlete does, you can find them at addicttoathlete.com or over on Instagram at addicttoathlete. We would love if you also followed along while you're over there with the Illuminate Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram at the Illuminate Podcast or on Twitter at Illuminate underscore pod. Thank you all for supporting what we do at the Illuminate Podcast. I'm thankful for all of you for listening and I hope you have a great rest of your week.